In his book, Visions of Grandeur, Ralph Matson observed, if we add up all the grand moments of our lives, most of us end up with a very small pile of memories. They are indeed golden. In contrast, a similar collection of our mundane times yields a ponderous heap. It's clear the bulk of our lives' efforts are consumed by routine tasks and ordinary occasions. A few spectacular events emerge. They stand out in our memories. They may even swell us with a little wholesome pride as we stroll down nostalgic streets. Yet, when we look at the rest of our lives, we see the majority is made up of routines, uneventful, perhaps mediocrity. Does that bother you as much as it bothers me? Or is that just the fabric of life and how it works out? Routines are not bad nor evil, but there are a lot of them. My precious and dear friend Chris DeVito taught me too soon old, too late smart. Did I get it right? So don't let the world teach you theology. I've never preached the last sermon, so I don't know how to do it. And this will be the last, last sermon I ever teach. My hope is not to tell you or guilt you or shame you. That's never who I've been. I'm a co-struggler. I limp along just like everybody. One of the unfortunate parts of ministry and pastors is somehow there's this little priest thing that he and his marriage and family are better than anybody else. And those of you who know me know that's not what I'm about. You're one of me, I'm one of you. I'm not any better than anybody in the room. Not that you needed to hear that, but I wanted to say it. I'm a co-struggler, and Christ loves me, and he loves you. Some lessons, you've heard all of these from me, but let's talk about them again. Number one, live for Christ, not for self. I have struggled with this more and more the older I get. How do I focus more on Christ than just I, me, my? How do I focus on Christ more than the horizontal? I can't measure it. I can't put a percentage on it. But there are times that I wonder through the routines of my mundane day, have I thought about the Savior? Have I stopped to pray? Have I stopped to say, God, I don't really like this situation or problem or person or whatever's happening, but you love me and you know all about this and you care about me and I need your help. How do we somehow dial it in where we think a little bit more about Jesus and a little less about ourselves? Galatians 2.20 was a verse I stumbled across in college. I was a sophomore at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. Living in a little rent house, no television, no nothing. It was simpler times. And I was reading my little Bible and came across this verse. And I know you have passages like this. It jumped off the page, invaded my heart and my head. And I was like, wow. And it was perhaps one of the first verses I memorized. Read it with me off the screen. And when I say that, I mean read it with me. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what I call cooperative sanctification. That I can't necessarily hurry up my sanctification, but I can certainly drag my feet. I can choose to sin. I can be apathetic. I cannot be in the Word. I cannot be around men and women who help me grow in my faith. And consequently, I'm not cooperating with the Spirit. Notice Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh. This nonsensical perfectionism junk going around that, you know, you're always going to be better and victorious and so forth. It's just a lie. You and I will struggle. And we're going to live in this flesh until we are with Christ. But he says, I live by faith. I'm a broken, ambling, limping sinner just like you, and I live by faith. And I love the way Paul crescendos this because he loved you. He gave himself up for you. He knew this. He knows it all. And Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, which is why I love Romans 7 so much. Because of Christ's accomplished work, Paul the Apostle tells you and me, we live by faith, not in the flesh. Even though we're in the flesh, we live by faith. Notice that he says, in the Son of God. In the Son of God. It's not faith in faith. It's not the little engine that's could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's a bedtime story of perseverance. Nothing to do with faith. Because it's not the exercise of how much faith you have that makes you a better Christian. It's trusting in him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Secondly, live with purpose. Um, you and I need a purpose in our life. When we're young and single, the world, and it's so different. Pandemic, post-pandemic culture is so different with the way the culture has gotten worse. And we live in a time where God I mean, you live here today. You and I lived through the so-called pandemic. We're here. Some of you were born in this period of time. It's not bad or wrong. It's just what it is. And yet you need clarity and purpose. When you're in your teens and 20s, you're just trying to bounce to the next thing and figure yourself out and insecurities and popularity. And by your 20s, if you went to college, you're navigating, what do I do? Am I identified with my job I'm a musician, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm an educator, I'm a programmer, I'm a realtor, whatever it is. Is that our identity <clears throat> as it goes along? If you happen to get married in your 20s or 30s and now you're two sinners glued together. Oh, so much fun. <laughs> Figuring out who you are, fighting your way, the way you were raised, they were raised. Joyful times. And you figure out, okay, what's our purpose? Hopefully you come up with something. Then you have kiddos if you have kids. And then the world realigns. You wonder what you did before. You have so much fun, hopefully. Unless you have a colic baby. <laughs> then you learn patience and prayer. And as they grow, things change in your world of protection and training. And i got to get it right and one day, some old preacher says they're free agents. 
They're free agents. They're free agents. They're free agents. You love them and teach them of Jesus, but by goodness, when they go out the door, literally and metaphorically, they are on their own. And you pray, and you beg, and you barter, and you scheme with friends, but they're free agents. And then one day they come home with a friend on their arm, and the process repeats. As we get older, they go off to college. Praise God. Empty nest comes along. Best chapter of life. Raise the roof. We love you, but we're glad you're gone. And then you figure out, what's my purpose? It was raising children. It was helping them. It was whatever, financially, emotionally, respite through hardships, whatever. But now they're adults. They really don't want your advice. They know what you would say. So you love and you try to navigate and you try to be an encouragement, not a critic. And then death starts to come around you. Friends, family, it has chapters of life. So each chapter, each decade, what's your purpose? You young men and women, you Gen Zs, you getting into college, I can't tell you what your purpose is. It's a different context. Be wary when somebody over 60 tells you what your purpose in life is. But I will tell you, the unchangeable purpose is to make disciples of all nations and to love as God loved. No matter where you are, who you are, what you do, your identity is not found in some contrived contraption of perversion and sin and ideology in the world your identities in Christ or not and following him you will never regret following Jesus Christ but you got to have a purpose and each decade is a good time to redefine it let me ask it a different way what are you going to remember what are you going to regret I envision myself more than likely, actuarially, I will die before Cindy, but maybe she dies before me. And if I'm on a rocking chair and a veranda or a townhouse or an assisted living, and I'm looking back over the chapters of my life, what will I remember and what will I regret? You better start thinking about that question today. First, or, uh, Colossians 1, 29 has been... I won't call it a life verse, that's always cheeky, but it's been important to me. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete. King said, King's English said, perfect in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving, agonizomai in Greek, agonizing according to his power which works mightily within me. Even here, Paul says, we're working hard, but not in the flesh. We're working hard for Christ, and that's, that's a juxtaposition I can't explain to you. I think it means being faithful and obedient, but I can't work harder to make people believe. I can work hard at it. What's your purpose? Third, seek good and godly counsel. Proverbs 11, verse 4, the second strophe, but in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And there's a couple of more references with similar encouragement. 
You need good counsel. Another way of saying this, you need a friend who knows when you, you need a dope slap or a dose of encouragement. And you've all met my friend Dave Gibson, and there are many others who know when I need a dope slap or when I need a dose of encouragement. I don't know that anyone told me this. There was no everyone needs a Barnabas and a Paul and a Timothy thing. I know that was some of you are old enough to remember that line. But I do remember in college I'd come to Christ in junior high but was really starting to own my faith in college. And I pursued men who were older, good, godly Christians. A couple of them were Interestingly, maxiofacial surgeons in Nacogdoches. One was a banker in Nacogdoches. One was a painter that I worked for. Doctors Rick and Hurst and Alan Hubbard and Lee Danis and Bill Flynn was the guy I worked for. And John Aldrews is a pastor of a small church called Grace Bible Church, not 200 yards across from the campus. And that was a different day. I wanted to go to Sunday school. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to go to Sunday night church because I knew I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wanted to grow. And I met all these men there. John Aldridge was so patient with this Catholic kid that couldn't figure out what he believed or why he believed it. And he opened the Bible. I remember why wouldn't an adult get baptized? I was baptized as a kid. John, and he opened his Bible just like this and said, well, let's look at Acts. And he just walked me through and read the verses. Well, John, I was already baptized as an infant. Well, when were these people baptized? And he patiently walked me through it. And one Sunday night in that little church, he baptized me. And Lee and Rick were patient with me. We read a brand new book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Changed my life. Off to seminary we went. Cindy and I got married, grad school. I pursued other people that were smarter, older, that knew things. Maybe it was insecurity. I don't care. I sought out men who were mature believers and said, I want to be like them in their walk with Christ, in their marriage, in the way they parent. I can still see a friend in seminary that had kids, and he just was so delighted to see his kids and play with his kids. Cindy wanted four kids two years apart. I said, let's take them one at a time. <laughs> and I remember when that first child was born, I had this instant love affair. It's never stopped. It's like this little person. And the second one came along. Jesse came along. They're both here, Hannah and Jesse. I can call them out. Jesse came along. And we this little baby. And they're very different people, all four of them. But I learned how to be a daddy in no small part from other daddies. And I would ask them. And it applied to every area of life. I've never made a major decision of any consequence without seeking counsel, ever. When I changed churches from D.C. to Chicago, Chicago here, from the prior church to here, I've never made a decision, even this transition, I've never made a decision without calling a friend and saying, give me the dope slap. What do I need to know? 
And I trust those men. And I would take too long to name them all. Let me say it a different way. If you don't have those kind of people in your life, you're either lazy or arrogant or both. You ain't that smart. And you're probably very insecure. Now, are all those men mentors and disciple makers in every category? No. And for a guy's brain, gentlemen, it's okay to transactionalize it. This person can help with the way I think about money. This person can help me the way I think about marriage and family. This guy's really, really good at teenagers. This guy's great as a dad of daughters. We weren't necessarily friends in every angle of life, but boy, that's the guy I go to. You got those people in your life? Seek good, godly counsel. You need it. The Abilene Institute wrote a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. A little tiny book. I can't remember who gave it to me, but it was a book. It was one of these books that you read, and after you read it, you were sick to your stomach because you were so called out. The thesis of the book basically is people know if you don't like them. And if you're an owner, a manager, a leader in a company, a group, you got people that work for you, They know who you like and who you don't like. They know it, and everybody else around knows it, that this guy or gal doesn't like this person. And that's the self-deception part. I gave this to every elder team I worked with. I gave it to all the, the cabinet when I was at Moody. I gave it to the trustees. I gave it to... Um, another group of elders, and you know, no one came to me and said, this has really been helpful. (laughs) Because we were all exposed. You need good and godly counsel who will tell you, Michael, everybody knows you don't like so-and-so. You better work on that because your leadership is kneecapped until you understand how to relate to that individual in a good, godly Christian kind of way. Four, my sins have greater impact than I want to acknowledge. And Christ's forgiveness has greater effect than I understand. I can't remember when it was. Cindy and I were, I know we were married, but we started memorizing Romans chapter 6, the whole chapter. I had never memorized a chapter. Some of you have memorized books of the Bible. I'm so impressed with that. Some of you homeschool. Moms and dad, phenomenal job teaching your kids 60 key scriptures or whatever it might be. Because that memorization, the old Awana program drove me nuts with the music, but boy, they got it right with the scripture. We used to tease about they look like a bunch of bowling leagues when they came in. If you don't know Awana, you have no idea what I'm talking about. For he who has died is freed from sin. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in God, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Do not let sin reign like a king in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. For sin shall not be master over it. You are not under law, but under grace. And having been freed from sins, you have become slaves of righteousness. What a change. You're freed from the shackles of being a sinner, but now you're enslaved to righteousness. 
in Romans 6 got me thinking about this. Let me ask it a very simple way. Do you love the world more than your Savior? Or to turn the heat up, do you love your sin that put your Savior on the cross more than you love your Savior? Every time you and I choose to sin, that's what we're effectively saying. I love my sin more than I love my Savior. When we began, what did I tell you? I'm not better than you. I got the same challenge you do. Please hear me. Five, maturity is when you stop blaming your past, own your present, and plan your future. I don't have a passage to underscore this other than to say I would argue ostensibly it's wisdom literature. It's common sense. It's wisdom. If you're defined by your past, you will always be defined by your past. If you don't own your future, meaning, okay, this is today, I get to make a decision, you'll never get past what happened to you, and you'll never plan your future. Forgive the Ramsey solution staff in the room, but Dave has the comment. I think it's the effect of the time to plant a tree was 50 years ago. But if you don't plant one today, another one won't be there. Every house Cindy and I have lived in, excepting the current one. Well, actually, I did it at the current one, too. I planted trees. You should go by our house in Northern Virginia to see the two Cleveland pear that I planted. They're magnificent. And that was pre-back surgeries when that 200-pound ball and that tree was a stick. And I pulled it out of a friend's pickup truck and it fell on the ground. And it took four of us to drag it across the grass. And we dug the hole with sharpshooters. And we put the soil and the peat moss in there. And we put those sticks in there on either side of the driveway. And today they are magnificent. You know, they never even called and said thank you for that. We've planted dogwoods and other trees, planted maples in our current home. You've got to stop blaming your past. Some of you were hurt. I'm not minimizing your hurt. Women, if you were abused by someone, I'm, please do not hear me saying it wasn't hurtful. What I'm saying is don't be a victim the rest of your life. I can't tell you the fulcrum or the mechanism, and nobody else can give you a pill and fix it. You alone can say, I will no longer be identified as a person that was hurt or abused. In God's great kindness with God's wisdom, I will say I'm no longer a victim. And in God's great kindness, I got today to do something different. And in God's great kindness, I'm going to plan a future. We were with some friends this weekend, and one of them plays a lot of instruments. We were down in Newberry, South Carolina, a little opera house down there. And we walked by this store and it had, they were teaching music lessons. And young people of all, age, all ages were in there. They had, you know, you pull an instrument off the shelf or bring your instrument in. And most of them were terrible. I mean, they were just, you know, they're learning. And one of my friends who's played drums and guitar, he was with me. And I said, yeah, Charlie, a few years ago, I asked some guys in Nashville, I said, okay, at uh, this chapter of life, I'm not going to play piano. I'll never be that good. What, what instrument should I play at this age of life? And they thought for a long time. And one guy said, you ever heard of a strum stick? 
Now, if you don't know what a drumstick is, you can look it up later, but it's basically a kazoo with strings on it. It's just an idiot thing you just strum, you know. And um, it, it hurt my feelings deeply. <laughs> but I needed to start 50 years ago. But some of you got today. Stop blaming your past on your present, plan your future. How much more in your spiritual life? Oh, I wish I was a great Christian, whatever that means. I wish I was a better husband or wife, whatever that means. You better plan, because it won't happen by itself. Number six, be a lifelong student of God's Word. And you've heard me say it a hundred times. Get your nose in the book. Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the Scriptures. The book widens and deepens with our years. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. What a great phrase. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. I called out Jason last service and I said, Jason, have you ever admonished us with a psalm or a hymn or a song? With thanksgiving. Isn't that an interesting way he says that? Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. How do you, I mean, how many of these songs did we sing today that you knew the words? Thank you for singing the word of God. A song Jason wrote when we began Stonebridge. I think it should be the anthem of the church here at Stonebridge. Credible song captured so much and it wasn't Boom chicka boom chicka Christian music. Forgive me. <laughs> Didn't require any smoke or mirrors. There's no substitute for time in God's Word. Start somewhere. How many of us don't raise your hand? Start a, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And then Genesis, that's no problem. Exodus, no problem. Leviticus, <laughs> what in the world? Now you feel guilty, and then you stop. And they were all God's people said, Amen. I did Robert Murray McShane's for years. It was read, read the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once through the course of a year. It was a beautiful program. Um, start 15 minutes. One of the main reasons, many reasons I say get a real Bible is do not do it with tech. Because the problem with tech is, it's in, oh, I'm going to look that up. Oh, I got a text message. Oh, look at the Instagram post. Oh, and an hour and a half is gone. You know, my dentist friend told me something the other day. He said, Michael, you know why people, this is for free. You know why people do this on their phone on Instagram or TikTok? So why? He goes, it's an endorphin hit. It's an endorphin hit. Same with chewing fingernails. He goes, when patients come in and they chew their fingernails down, I say, you know why you do that? It's not because you're nervous or you're anxious. It's an endorphin hit. And if you understand that, that will help you moderate. Say, I don't need to do that. So this keeps me from doing this. And I used to have a stack of three by five index cards with a pen. You know what a pen is? For those of you never seen one, this is a pen, yeah. And you open it and it writes on paper. You don't need a tablet with a program that doesn't work any good anyway. And, 
and the thought, oh, wait a minute, I got to pay the water bill. I got to call the, the yard folks. I got to, you know, take my dry cleaning. I got a prescription to refill. And then if I do that, it's gone, right? So the three by five card was write it down and physically Michael put his hand on it and moved it over here out of my sight because it distracts me. And then I re oh, I got to write it down, put it over here. Write it down, put it over here. And then after a while, that won't be an issue. Then go to 30 minutes. Then set a goal for an hour. An hour? An hour. Not because you have to. Because you get to. Not because you should, but because you can. You can't give the Lord 124th of your day. Please don't hear me shaming you. If he saved your life, can you serve him? Maturity is turning discipline into reflex, said Fred Smith. You do this long enough over a period of time, it won't be I got to get up and check the box on my reading program or read my Bible for the year. It will be I can't wait to get, in my case, showered, shaved, dressed, caffeine, and then my handbook to prayer, handbook to scripture, my Bible. Don't make excuses. Ties into the last one. Don't forget, forget what you did. Own today. Plan it. Plan your future. Number seven, compassion. A comparison is the kiss of death to contentment. We live in an unfortunate culture. Bigger, better, newer, more is part of the fabric of America. Even when the economy goes crazy, we're still obsessed with bigger, better, newer, more. Um, a friend gets a new home. I need a new home. Friend gets a new car. I need a new car. Friend gets a new dress, new shoes. I don't need one. Someone else does. Um, how many of you still go to a shopping mall? Physically go to the mall. See, it's a godly church. How many of you shop on here? A lot. Yeah. And, you know, I, oh, I need that. I need that. I need that. I, I have lists in my Amazon thing. And you know why I put them in there? So I won't buy them impulsively. And I just leave them in the list. Now, the sin part of me is hoping my kids or my wife will say, hey, he's had that list a long time. I'll buy it for him. But that doesn't happen. That's an illusion. We... Consumer, to be a consumer is one thing. We consume things, clothes wear out, you know, we have to, and once in a while you have to buy a new whatever. But consumerism is different. And we are sewn into consumerism in the West. Um, it's insatiable. When I was in grad school, I told the story too many times, but I was going through a tough patch with money. And I called a couple of these mentors back in Nacogdoches and I said, I'm not asking you for money. What am I supposed to do? And one doctor friend told me, Michael, your problems and mine are exactly the same. It's just how many zeros are before the decimal point. How you use it, not how much you have. I said, yeah, but I ain't got any. It ain't about how I'm using it. I don't have any. But I learned an important lesson that day. And I was just learning Greek, and so I was a Greek expert. So I got my tools out and I did a word study on contentment. And it, wasn't, it was a short order. You know what contentment means? Enough. I can save you the word study. It means enough. 
You got enough? You better find a line and say, enough. Now, God may prosper and bless you, and you may have all kinds of opportunities to say, yeah, but we could do this. Enjoy the stuff of life. Enjoy the stuff of life. Don't make a God out of it. You got the freedom to do, sell, buy, change, trade. Do it. Don't make a God out of it. It's his. But if you compare yourself to somebody else, Philippians 4.11, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Other verses for you to look up. I don't think most Christians understand this. I don't think Christians understand you can set a standard of living. You're still going to have consumables, but you can set a standard of living and say no. Again, I know you're going to think I'm bragging. I don't really care anymore. When we were young, we said we will increase our giving before our standard of living, and we did. And we got a raise or we got some money we didn't expect. And Cindy and I would say, where are we going to give some of this away? And God bless you if you're married to a spouse that loves to give. Unfortunately, too many couples fight over it. Can I just say one thing about that? It's God's money. It ain't yours. What are you going to do with what he gives you? That's the guilt for the day. Number eight, ask God not merely for a miracle, but for an immovable faith. When cancer calls, when one of your children breaks your heart, when fill in the blank, your marriage is in the drink. Oh, God, just fix this, fix this, God. I mean, I have a friend, he just, they just took his arm from cancer a few weeks ago. I went back for a routine checkup. He's got cancer in his lungs all over. I wish he'd have a miracle and it'd all go away. But you know what? Not to sound indelicate, he's going to die at some point, just like you and me. I'd love for him to go back and the cancer's all gone. You've heard my little half heretical theory about Lazarus. Lazarus got a bad deal. He was dead on his way to heaven. And he has to come back and live. That's a ripoff in my book. <laughs> he had to die again. That stinks. It was to pronounce the glory of God that Jesus was over life and death and resurrection to prove to Martha and others that he was indeed the one who could raise the dead. But Lazarus got ripped off. I, I kind of wonder if he's sitting by the fire. Going, Man, I really wish he didn't resurrect me. I'd much rather be in heaven. This is a bum rap. Because a miracle begets the need for another miracle and another miracle and another miracle. Not that God can't or won't, but what about saying, God, give me an immovable faith that no matter what happens to me, I will trust you. And that's the story of Scripture. That's the story of the patriarchs. That's the story of the hall of faith, the people that died for their faith, never receiving the promises of God. But they were immovable in their faith. And that enables me to smile at the future. Number nine, this life at best is a clean bus station. 
We work so hard to make earth heaven, but it will never be heaven. Cindy, as most of you know, is a realtor. And she has some great ministry with people. And people want to build a house or buy what she calls a forever house. And she'll tell them at the right time and the right way. She's so much better than I would ever be at this. Buy the house. We, you know, I mean, she, you know, no, she's, she knows how to work with people. It's not about sales. It's about helping and ministry. She says, this is not your forever home. This is not your forever home. Maybe you'll get another home one day. Even if you build a custom home, there'll be things you don't like about it. Because this earth is not heaven. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose, how, though, though the outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. I've again told it too many times, William F. Buckley turned 80, the reporters put the microphone in his face. He says, what's it like to be 80, Mr. Buckley? He says, I'm decomposing. <laughs> he was a devout Catholic, as I understand. But the outer man is decaying. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. So which are you going to feed, the outer man or the inner man? If the outer man's on the way out and the inner man's on the way up, Enjoy the stuff of life, but feed the inner man. Number 10, be the man or woman Christ wants you to be no matter what. I think in the West, especially Western Christianity, has been so co-opted with bigger, better, new, and more, with prosperity, with if-then theology, all that we've talked about. It's been so co-opted with that, we don't understand life doesn't work that way. And so... When your son or daughter makes poor choices, when your husband or wife heads for the door, when you have a son that says he wants to be a she or a daughter that says she wants to be a he, I need an immovable faith. I need to be the man God wants me to be no matter those circumstances. It's a great litmus for me personally. Second Samuel 10, 12, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God, that the Lord, what the Lord may do, what is good in his sight. This passage is saying in 2 Samuel 10, 12, it matters how you have faith because other people's watch. It matters when you're courageous and strong when the thing's going to pot. Because other people go, well, you know, they, they stood strong. They were courageous in the face of a horrible thing. Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all those who hope in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, I love it. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I paraphrase it, buck up. When Cindy and I were in D.C. in 9-11, Brian Birdwell was in the Pentagon. He spent... 13 weeks in the Washington Burn Center post 9-11. Went to visit him, got my uh, indoctrination into burn centers. And um, they would put him in a chlorine bath for five minutes, full morphine IV, screaming and writhing in agony. He, said, he never called me Michael, always called me Pastor. Because every second on that clock feels like an eternity. 
And then they take them out and then take a brush and they debreed them. And they wrap them up, put them in bed. Tomorrow morning, do it again. Every day. Burn patients all want to die. They all want to die. Just let me go. Let me go. Let me go. They don't. Brian is a Texas state senator today. He said, I'm going to say over 48 major surgeries. If you met him, he's a burn victim, you can tell. He'll go to burn centers, especially pediatric wards. He'll take his shirt off and sit on a chair with the kids and let them feel a sector of the skin. This is what it's going to be like. He calls me one time after I'd had a back surgery. Pastor, how you doing? And I told him a little bit, a little bit of whining, long pause. Buck up! <laughs> Can you buck up in your pain? Can you be strong, stand in the faith, act like men? You know, there's so many problems in our country, we can't fix one of them. I guarantee you, if the men in the body of Christ understood 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it would change the country. And notice I said men. If you're here and been here a while, you probably know Christ. But in a room this size, and for those of you who might be watching, you may not know this is not a game. It's the best transaction, quote unquote, ever offered to humanity. That you can know that you know that you know that you know that you know where you will spend all of eternity. Either with Christ or not. I learned many, many years ago, like some of you probably have, the so-called Roman road or bad news, good news, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might take a rock and throw it to the Washington Monument. I might take a walk, rock. Neither one of us is going to get close. We're both going to fall short. We all fall short. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Because you're a sinner, because you fall short, you're going to die. We're all going to die. That's the bad news. That's what you earn. That's what you get because you're a man or woman that's a sinner. But the good news is, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the verse that took Catholic priest Martin Luther and he became saved and changed his life. God so loved you, he died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. While you were yet a sinner. You don't have to be good enough to get to God. God was good enough to come to man, if you will. And then finally, how do you appropriate this? Bad news, we're a sinner. Bad news is worse. The wages of sin is death. Good news is Christ loved you and died for you. And the good news gets better. How do you appropriate it? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been And that not of your It is a of that no Man should boast, not as a result of works. No one should boast. Versus saying you appropriate this by believing. He gives you a gift. 
You appropriate it by faith. I believe you. You tell your kids today, you behave at church. Afterwards, we're going to go to such and such restaurant. They believe you. In fact, they'll beat a door into the car saying, are we going to such and such? You said we're going to such and such. That's faith. Do you believe what God said? You're a sinner that deserves death. The wages you earn is death. But he loved you and died in your place on your behalf instead of you. And by trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you're given a free gift called eternal life. Amen. Period. Do you know that? Do you understand it? Do you know that you know that you know where you're going to spend all of eternity? My friends, I would stay up here for an hour and a half explaining it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Trusting Christ is a sure way to salvation. If you don't trust Christ, you're on your own. And it's not a happy ending. Finally, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works mightily within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Love you all. It's been an extraordinary privilege. I've been paid for 43 years to study the Bible and write sermons. What a gig. Charmed life by any measure. And God's been faithful. And he will be faithful to his church. His church. Not mine, not the elders, to his church. And you're part of that legacy.